you remain standing for God's word tonight as we look at a good portion of Hosea. We'll begin reading in verse 4 of Hosea chapter 6 as we continue to read and preach through this book of the prophet Hosea. We'll begin reading in verse 4 and carry through the end of chapter 7. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood as robbers lie in wait for a man. So the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed, wherein I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely, the thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them, they are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers, they are like a heated oven whose baker ceased to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine, stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven they approached their intrigue. All night their anger smolders, in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes itself with the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, for they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I'll spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heaven. I will discipline them according to the report made to the congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gnash themselves, they rebel against me. Although I am trained and strengthened their arm, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. John Calvin in his Institutes writes this, By piety, I mean that union of reverence and love to God which the knowledge of his benefits inspire. For until men feel that they owe everything to God, that they are cherished by his fatherly care, and that he is the author of 
all their blessings so that they seek nothing beyond him. They'll never submit to him in voluntary obedience until they place their entire happiness in him. They'll never yield up their whole selves to him in truth and sincerity. You hear what Calvin is saying, that true piety comes as a result of true heart devotion. And that true heart devotion comes by realizing that one is cherished by God and God alone. As a father would cherish his child, that God indeed is the one that has cherished us, that has given us all of our blessings, and that we owe everything to him, including our entire happiness. Only through this realization do we recognize that we, as a result, must give ourselves wholly and fully to God. Out of this comes Calvin's motto, no doubt you have heard, where it says, I offer my heart to thee, O Lord, sincerely and promptly. For Calvin, anything else would be idolatry. That God desires the whole of us. And this truly was more than just a motto for Calvin. This was a summary of his life. One of his biographers said this of Calvin. He was mastered by God. Calvin, more than simply dedicating himself, offered himself sacrificially to the Lord. His family, his studies, his preaching, his entire ministry. He was a man who ministered not for his own glory, but for the glory of God. Of God, to be mastered by God, to be wholehearted in our affections and in our service. That truly ought to be the desire of every Christian, but yet we feel the battle within, do we not? That our natural bent is not towards wholeheartedness, is it? But rather to half heartedness. And oftentimes we don't stir up the fire, but rather we allow the fires to burn low. As we come to this passage in Hosea, I think that is exactly what Hosea is accusing the people of, or the Lord is accusing the people of through Hosea. That it's not that they do not love, or that their love is absent, rather their love is half-hearted. And as a result, they so easily turn as one would between two lovers, so to speak, that they go from one to another, straying in between, sometimes going to God, sometimes going to the other nations. And Hosea demonstrates in this passage the error of this way, the error of their relationship, and gives Several pictures that I think are very helpful to us, illusions of this problem. And so we'll see this passage in two points, half-hearted love, and then pictures of that half-heartedness. First, this half-hearted love. Just as a reminder, if you haven't been here with us, last week we saw that Hosea, in a sense, sets forth a trial of the people. And God issues the judgment and the conviction that as a result of their sin, he's going to remove his favorable presence from the people. And with this hand of protection gone, the 
armies of the surrounding nations would enter in and destroy them and that devastation would be quick and would be complete. Hosea likens God unto a lion, a roaring lion that will tear them apart and consume them. But as we see at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, this isn't just a tearing apart for tearing apart's sake. Rather, it says in chapter 6, verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord. And that really is the reason why God brings about this judgment. Really, it's a discipline so that they would return, that they would return to the Lord. It goes on to say, He has tore us so that he may heal us. He has struck us down so that he will bind us up. And that truly is the ultimate reason is that God would allow them to undergo this so that they would return. In return, they would. But the problem, if you know Israel's history, is that, unfortunately, their returning would only last for a while. We see this pattern, especially in the book of Judges, that the people would do what was right in their own eyes, and as a result, God would discipline them by allowing an occupying nation to come in, and the people would experience the misery of this captivity, and they would cry out to God, and God would send a judge to deliver them, and they would be free. But then again, they would go back to the sins that they committed beforehand. Their faithfulness, their love was short-lived, and the cycle would start over again. And we read that again and again and again in the book of Judges. And we see that here as well. This is the complaint of God with the people of Israel. Verse 4 says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Their love is a morning cloud. It is as a morning mist. I'm sure all of you have experienced this. You go out in the morning and you don't put your sandals on. You put on your shoes because you know if you have to walk across the grass, your feet will get wet. But you know, especially around here and especially in the summer, that that dew does not last long at all. By 10 a.m., 11 at the latest, it is gone. And God is saying that is an example of your love. It's here and then it is quickly removed or quickly gone. It is spent or dried up. As a result, verse 5 says, I have sent the prophets to slay you by the words of my mouth and my judgment goes forth as light. God is faithful to warn and his judgments go out to the people. And again, as we've said many times before, that that is a loving response on the behalf of God. God not to warn, not to give these types of where their sins will lead them would be unloving. But God is faithful to give them the truth of what is going to take place if they continue on this path. And then we read this in verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. God desires 
our hearts rather than just right actions. We're not to go through the right motions but not have the right motivations behind it. In this way, we are very much different than any other creatures, correct? Than the animals themselves. Animals have no rationale. They do things because of instinct. There's no logic behind it, no emotions attached to it. The life for an animal is a risk or reward type scenario, but not so with humans. Being created in the image of God, we are given rationale, we're given logic, we're given reason, we're given thought, we're given emotions and motivations, and we're to use all of those things in our pursuit of God. And for us to do things with no thought, or just going through the motions, or doing them rote, is not what God is looking for, especially in our worship. It's not that action is not important, it is, but it's not enough. It's not enough to do just what is right, but not to do it for the right reasons. That is half-heartedness. And that is what seems to be going on with the people of Israel is that they were giving their sacrifices. They were giving their burnt offerings. And that was good. But they were not doing it out of love. They were not doing it out of knowledge. They were not doing it out of worship. Rather, out of pure duty and obligation. Again, nothing wrong with duty, but it cannot be an either-or situation. It must be a both-and. It's not right action or right heart. No, it's right action and right heart. And we read of this throughout the scriptures, do we not? Isaiah 58, 3. The people ask of God, why have you not seen our fasting? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have taken no knowledge of it? And God's response is, because in the day of your fasting, you seek your own pleasure. They're saying, you're not doing your fasting for my sake, you're doing it for your own. Micah 1.6, God says to the people, you despise my name. And the people respond, how have we despised your name? And God's response, by offering polluted food upon my altar. They are bringing food to the altar, but it was not in the way that God desired or wished. They were not giving it in the proper manner, the proper way. And this is true in the New Testament as well. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees saw what the disciples were doing. And Jesus uh, responds to their question when they ask, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go learn and what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, which seems to be a direct quote of this in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The people did not understand that God was doing this, Jesus Christ was doing this out of mercy mercy for sinners, yet they saw no need for mercy. 
They were very prompt in their sacrifices, weren't they not? But they had forgotten the greater and more important things behind the sacrifice, that of love and mercy. Again, Jesus in Matthew 15, verse 8, says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And we ought to understand the problem. One commentator puts it this way. Think about a human marriage. Which husband wants a wife who serves his meals every night at 6 p.m. but does not love him? Who wants a wife who serves with resentment? Who serves while she dreams of the lovers she wish she could have? Who wants a cold, loveless marriage of mere formality or duty? No one would want that. No husband would desire that. No wife would say that that would be okay as long as he does what he's supposed to do but has no love. No love is that which undergirds our human relationships and especially our marriages. Once I heard in marriage counseling a wife saying that her husband never speaks of his love towards her or never demonstrates that love. And his response was, well, I go out every day and work to provide for you and for the family. What do you think that is? My response to him was, well, that is good, but it's not one or the other. It's both ands. Yes, of course, you should go out and provide for your family. That is a demonstration of your love, but you should also confess your love and profess it to your wife and tell her the reasons why you love her and do these things for her. And so we so obviously see this in our human relationships, in our marriages. So why would we think that it would work with God? Again, commentator says this, religious duty without love for God is an attempt to manipulate or bribe him. God does not want our rituals. He wants our heart. When our hearts are not in it, our rituals become a burden to him. And I think that is absolutely right. And I think that is a warning to us, especially as Reformed Christians, that this very much can be our sin. That we can be very precise in our theology, very specific in our worship. We want to do everything right and according to the scriptures we profess. But what if we're doing it right if we are crossing our T's and dotting our I's, but yet our hearts and our minds are far from him? Are we any better than what God says here? Bringing sacrifice but not having love. Bringing offering but not doing it in a proper knowledge towards God. Or perhaps we can think, My life is quite good. I'm doing what God demands of me. I'm even coming to evening worship. But is all of my life, including coming this night in true spiritual worship, am I worshiping with my heart and mind and soul and strength? Am I worshiping just out of mere duty or am I worshiping out of love for my God and my Savior? Because... If we're doing it without those proper motivations behind it, then it is half worship, half-hearted worship, and really not worship 
at all. And what we see is half-hearted love leads to wholehearted sin. And we read of several of the sins in chapter 6, verse 7. And Hosea lays out before them, as we have seen many of these already in this book, the various sins that they enter into. But we get a summary of it in verse 7, chapter 6. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenants. There they dealt faithlessly with me. That they do not have the true faith and operates in that faithfulness towards God. And as a result, in a whole host of sins that we read through chapter 7, verse 7. But let me give you several pictures, second then, of half-heartedness. Hosea here gives four pictures of why half-heartedness, half-worship doesn't work. We see one here in verse 8, that Ephraim is a cake not turned. Or in other words, a half-baked bread, half-baked cake. It has all of the right ingredients. It's been put together in the proper way, but it has not been cooked fully. And so what good is it? Would you present a cake that has not cooked all the way through? No, nobody would want that type of cake. No one would want to eat and partake of that type of bread. It's really good for nothing. Perhaps you've had this before where one of the burners in your oven goes out and perhaps part of it is burnt and part of it is still raw or undercooked. And you don't want either. You don't want the burnt part and you don't want the undercooked part. And as a result, it becomes inedible. Or perhaps when something is lukewarm. I'm a person that likes my coffee hot and as soon as it it's not hot anymore. It is no good. It must be tossed out or warmed up. This is what God says in Revelation three fifteen through 16. Talking to the church in Laodicea. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That there was a lukewarmness, as a result, a good-for-nothingness to their deeds and to their actions. And we see the reason why here for Israel that they're called a half-baked cake because it says in verse 8, Ephraim mixes himself with the people. In other words, there's no distinction between Israel and the rest of the people. There's no salt, there's no light. The salt has lost its saltiness. The light has grown dim, and therefore it's good for nothing. And again, the church needs to be warned about this. I think there's two errors that we can so easily fall into. We can fall into the fear of becoming too much like the world, and so therefore we isolate ourselves and hide the light that we have been given. Or we can become too much like the world and therefore extinguish the light altogether. Both are wrong. We do not want to be a half-cooked cake. Rather, we want to have a wholeheartedness 
And I think a wholeheartedness drives both of those things out. A wholehearted dedication to the Lord allows no room for compromise, as well as a wholeheartedness to the Lord allows for no fear, because perfect love casts out fear. And so we as a church must pray for that wholeheartedness. We personally must pray for that wholeheartedness so that we would not hide the light nor extinguish the light by becoming too much like the world, but that the Lord would use us to shine forth through our good deeds, and as the scripture says, so that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. Well, another allusion or picture that we have here in verse 9 of chapter 7 is a deluded old man. It says, strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. In other words, it is a man that doesn't realize that his strength has left him and that he now has gray hairs upon his head. Oftentimes with my children, I like to embarrass them by dancing like them or using words or phrases or sing to popular songs that they know, but perhaps I would not enjoy so much. And they oftentimes shake their heads and cover their eyes because they know that their dad is old and shouldn't be doing these things. But it's sad when a person doesn't realize their age. When they try to hold on to their youth, the youth that has been lost years ago. And you want to say to them, act your age. It's better for you to be you and accept your lot in life, to accept how old you have become and save yourself the embarrassment or possibly injury. Stop trying to act young or dress young. Again, I think Hosea says this because it's a picture of not being wholehearted or devoted, being or wanting to be something that you're not, wanting to, again, be like the nation's. And as a result, be half-hearted. Verse 11 gives another picture. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. Dove, back in those days, was a bird that would be hunted. And this dove mentioned here is senseless and silly. One that is calling out. Essentially calling out to be trapped, calling out to be caught. And again, you see the metaphor that Israel is doing the same. They're calling to Egypt and Assyria and flirting with them, saying, here we are. Not really that these nations don't see them as allies, but see them as foes. Nations that will trap them, that will hunt them in a sense. And as a result, calling out to them makes them silly and senseless. These nations have no desire for them. And yet Israel has abandoned God who does watch over them, who does keep them. Again, this reminds me of Proverbs chapter 7, where there 
The author of Proverbs says with persuasive words, the adulterous woman led the young man astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierced his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it would cost him his life. There we see the same picture, do we not? A bird darting into a snare, not knowing that it would cost him his whole life. We see how sin leads us astray, that it calls out to us, but it has no good desires for us. And yet, if we are wholehearted to the Lord, we see that those things are only things that would destroy us, that would not give us life, that would not be pleasing to God. And therefore, we do not go astray, that we are not a silly and senseless dove that would be so easily caught and trapped by sin. Well, one more picture here, verse 16. It says, they return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. And here we see a faulty bow, as in a bow and arrow. And just as a bow would not be used properly in a proper way, and therefore do harm both to the handler as well as those around, so is Israel. They are not being used in the way that God would intend them to be. My son this week is going to do a whittling badge for scouts, and to do so he must prove how to properly handle a knife before he can begin to whittle again so that he would not be a danger to himself or a danger to others. And that's how we teach those that would use a knife or use a firearm, correct? Again, this is a picture of Israel. Uh, Though they could be a mighty weapon in the hands of God, instead they do harm to themselves and to those around. They go off target. Good intentions aimed wrongly, quickly go astray and do harm. And so we see all of these pictures, all these pictures of half-heartedness, and all of these things, all these allusions are good in themselves, right? We would say that a bread and an old man and a bird and a bow are good things. But they are all good things that are not doing that which they were created to do. And therefore, they are half-baked, deluded, senseless, and faulty. And we get the point, do we not? When we do not worship and love God as we ought to, we're not doing that which he created for us to do. And therefore, what good are we? We're missing the point. We're missing the point and the purpose of us as creatures. We have gone astray. We have gone awry. And this is true of all mankind, and it would be true of us if it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ, the only man that was 
perfect in all of his ways. The only man that did that which he was created to do. And therefore, we too, us in him, through his redemption, he is making us, he is transforming us back to our original creation. But we are very much a work in progress. But we have this promise that Jesus Christ will complete his work because he himself is complete and we are complete in him. But as we undergo this transformational process, let's not lose sight of that which is most important. Let us not just honor him with our lips, have our hearts be far from him. Let us not give proper sacrifice, proper worship, and not also back that up with proper love to him. Let us love with whole hearts in a world where there is much lacking in wholehearted dedication. We, as the people of God, demonstrate what it means to be wholly dedicated to the Lord. May we Uh, Be like Calvin, may it be said of us, like it was said of him, that he was mastered by God in our service and in our love. Let us not be like the morning mist. It's here and then quickly gone. But let us have an ever-present love towards God, being reminded that we love because he first loved us. And so let us tonight say with Calvin, Lord, I offer my heart to you promptly and sincerely. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we are convicted in many ways reading a passage like this. We can so easily deride the Israelites of old and think how is it that they could be silly and senseless and go astray. And yet, Lord, we recognize that this is a depiction of our own hearts, that we are so quick to be led in the opposite way of that which you have commanded. And Lord, as a result, our hearts can grow cold and our lights can be dim. But Lord, I pray that you'd stir up within us again another fire that would burn brightly, another light that would shine forth so that we can shine forth and be a witness of that which you have done for us and in us, O Lord. Lord, we thank you this night for the Lord Jesus Christ who was that perfect light. And through that perfect light and life, O Lord, we truly are redeemed. And as a result, O Lord, may we be wholeheartedly dedicated to you. For we pray this all in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.